0: This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.
1: Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. It's very, very good to be back. My name is Aaron Bastani. And this evening, I have the immense pleasure of being joined by Dalia Gabrielle. Dalia, how are we?
0: I'm good, Aaron. I mean, we're both parents now. You're parents of a beautiful baby girl, and I'm the parent of a freshly done PhD. I mean, so I know exactly what you've been going through over the past few weeks.
1: I was going to say, congratulations on that. I remember seeing your Instagram story maybe a week ago now, or a little bit longer. Sorry, time is a bit strange for me right now, but immense congratulations for that, Dahlia. So you've done your Viva, you're all done. It's Dr. Dahlia.
0: All done. All done. Yes. And congratulations to you as well, Aaron, on beautiful Ariana.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. It's so nice to have some good news. Makes a change. Uh, Coming up later tonight, junior doctors have walked out on strike as part of their ongoing dispute with the government. Donald Trump has been banned by the Colorado Supreme Court from appearing on the state's presidential ballot. And a judge has ordered dozens of Jeffrey Epstein's associates to be revealed. Stay tuned for all of that. And make sure to let us know your comments on YouTube using the Super Chat. Or, of course, you can tweet at us on the hashtag Navarralife. First story. Israel and Hamas have begun to negotiate a new humanitarian ceasefire, which makes it an unusual moment for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to make this inflammatory statement. We're continuing the war to the end. It will continue until Hamas is destroyed, until victory, until all the goals we set are met. Destroying Hamas, releasing our hostages and removing the threat from Gaza. Anyone who thinks we'll stop is unmoored from reality. We're raining fire on Hamas, hellfire. All Hamas terrorists from first to last face death. We have They have rather only two options, surrender or die. Pretty tough talking. Of course, all negotiations come with some public saber-rattling. Privately, though, diplomacy seems to be moving forwards. And in a sign of the seriousness of those talks, Hamas leader Ismail Haniyeh has today travelled from Gaza to Egypt, where he'll enter talks with Egypt's intelligence chiefs. There also appears to be a proposed deal now on the table. Israel is prepared to offer a one-week pause in their attack on Gaza in exchange for the release of more hostages. So how did we get here? According to reports, CAI Director Bill Burns met with Qatari Prime Minister Mohammed bin Abdulrahman Al Thani and Head of Israeli Intelligence Agency Mossad David Barnea earlier this week. Israeli officials report that Bania presented a proposal that would see the release of a further 40 Israeli hostages. Axios has this on the terms of that deal. The group would include the remaining women Hamas is holding, men above the age of 60, and other hostages who are sick or seriously wounded and in need of urgent medical care. As part of the proposal, Israel said it would agree for a temporary ceasefire of at least one week, Israeli officials say. In the previous deal, Israel agreed to a one-week pause of its attacks in Gaza in return for 80 hostages. Israel also suggested it might release Palestinian prisoners who were convicted of more serious attacks on Israel than those who were released in the previous deal. Israeli officials say there are dozens of such Palestinian prisoners who are old or sick and who could be released as part of a humanitarian deal. Yesterday, Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, revealed that the country is ready to negotiate a fresh humanitarian pause in hostilities with Hamas. At a meeting with foreign diplomats, Herzog said this. Israel is ready for another humanitarian pause and additional humanitarian aid in order to enable the release of hostages. And the uh, the responsibility lies fully with the sinwar and the leadership of Hamas. In response to that statement, Hamas said this. We affirm our position of categorically rejecting to hold any form of negotiations over prisoners' exchange under the continuing Israeli genocidal war. We are, however, open to any initiative that contributes to ending the aggression on our people and opening the crossings to bring in aid and provide relief to the Palestinian people. These new talks come after Hamas released a video of three elderly hostages in their captivity. Aged between 79 and 85, Amiran Cooper, Yoram Metzger and Chaim Perry are all being held in Gaza. The release of the film led to relatives of the hostages calling for the Israeli government to speed up negotiations for their release. A spokesperson for Kibbutz near Oz, where the men were staying on October 7th, said this. We appreciate any sign of life from the hostages, but time is running out. The immediate release of all those abducted through any potential negotiation avenue is urgently required. Each passing day exacerbates their situation. Recent events sadly illustrate that the hostages' situation is deteriorating with each passing day, particularly for older individuals. Despite that plea, Israel's bombing of Gaza continues. (laughs) That was an Israeli airstrike on Rafah. Israel had previously declared that the area was safe, urging Palestinians from across the Strip to head there. According to the UN, it is now the most densely populated area in Gaza. The agency says that each square kilometer of the region now contains more than 12,000 Palestinians. Now, to put that into perspective, the population density of London is approximately half that. Now, the strike also saw buildings near to Rafa's Kuwaiti hospital bombed. This was the moment Al Jazeera caught that attack live on air. Yes, sir.
2: Oh my God, did you hear that? Yes, yes, yes. Oh my God. Oh oh, that's the hospital, that's the hospital. That's the hospital. Oh my God. Oh. Are you guys hearing that? Yes, we are. We are hearing that, Henny. Are you, are you okay? Are, you, are you in, in a the... safe place to, to continue to
1: talk no. to us? Wait! No, No! Oh, my God. No, 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 no. This is really bad. This is bad. This is bad. A reminder, people have been told to go to Rafa. That's a hospital in Rafa, and yet it's being attacked. Uh, there have also been reports of further attacks on the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza, as well as a controlled demolition of approximately 56 buildings in Gaza City by the IDF. According to the latest figures from Gazan officials, at least 20,000 Palestinians have now been killed in Gaza, with nearly 8,000 children among them. UNICEF says it's at least 5,000. Uh, that figure has led the UN to declare Gaza the most dangerous place on Earth to be a child. And that's not just because of the bombardment, disease and hunger are rampant too. UNICEF spokesperson James Elder was recently in Gaza and he told journalists this, "'I am furious that those with power shrug "'as this humanitarian nightmare is unleashed "'on a million children. "'I'm furious that children recovering from amputations "'are bombed and killed in NASA hospital. "'I'm furious that more children hiding somewhere "'have limbs blown off every day. I am furious that so many children I met cannot grieve for their killed mother, father, and family. And so where do children and their families go? They're not safe in hospitals. They're not safe in shelters. And they're certainly not safe in the so-called safe zones. Currently in Gaza, there is on average around one toilet for 700 children and families. Relocate families to places where there is no toilet. And it is tens of thousands of people resorting to buckets or open defecation. Without water and sanitation nor shelter, these so-called safe zones have become zones of disease. International pressure in favour of a ceasefire is mounting, with many Western leaders now calling for some form of truce. But some countries are going even further to put pressure on Israel. Malaysia has banned all ships flying Israeli flags from its ports in response to Israel's actions in Gaza. Malaysia's Prime Minister said the ban was a response to, quote, Israel's actions that ignore basic humanitarian principles and violate international law through the ongoing massacre and brutality against Palestinians. Dalia, your thoughts on this? Because we've seen a lot of movement over the the last week, really. Of course, this was discussed uh, yesterday, but it, I think, has to be touched on once more. Obviously, what's going on in the Red Sea with Houthis and so on diverting already $35 billion worth of cargoes. Uh, You're seeing now steps being made by the Malaysians, quite, quite overt. It does feel as if the tide is turning with regards to international opinion. Because so far, we've seen votes in the General Assembly or whatever, and most people support a ceasefire. Britain, the US, Israel, Ukraine doesn't or abstains, Germany too. But now actually, we're seeing sort of more material costs to Israel of what they're doing. What do you think that means and how does it end?
0: Yeah, I mean, at first, it goes without saying that anything less than a full permanent ceasefire is not a true ceasefire. We saw, we learned from last time, seven days of, of, um, of cessation of hostilities. And then on one of the first days back, Israel killed 700 Palestinians in 24 hours. It's almost like they use these, tu- these periods to recuperate resources um, in order to continue and intensify um, the genocide happening against the Palestinians in Gaza. As for the, um, as you mentioned, the Houthi rebels and, and the Yemeni um, escalation of attacks in the Red Sea, I think that that is absolutely why we are seeing uh, a quick turnaround of events in the past week. One thing that's really interesting about the what's happening in the Red Sea right now is that the the rebels are not specifically targeting Israeli ships or ships that are bound towards Israel. In fact, it is somewhat indiscriminate. Um, the attacks that they are are mounting in the sea um, in the this particular part of the, of the world. And what that has done has created a generalized sense of pressure on commerce. And the aim there is not to necessarily directly appeal to Israel or directly put pressure on Israel, but to put pressure on the international community, specifically, you know, as you mentioned, the US, Britain, Germany, who are in the global minority for their continued support of Israel, to try and put material pressure on those states to then withdraw their support from Israel, which would then massively hamper the ability of Israel to continue um, their genocide against the Palestinians. You know, we often talk about when we think about why this part of the world is geopolitically very contested, you know, often oil is the main topic of conversation. You know, of course, you have human beings who happen when you have human beings who happen to exist on top of resources that are absolutely essential to capitalism the sovereignty and lives of the people that live on those resources becomes much less important than securing those resources for those who are in power so oil is often the main character of this conversation but we forget that ports and shipping is another reason why who is in power in this part of the region really matters under capitalism when you look at you know the suez canal 10% of global shipping moves through that canal and since you know escal- escalations have taken place in the red sea you've had the top 5 shipping companies saying that they will not be going through that area so what they're going to have to do is take a safer but much longer route which will incur costs which will then place pressure on businesses which will then place pressure on consumers we already have you know an economy that is a cost of living that is out of control for most of the world's population. We already have issues in the Panama Canal. So, all of when you're talking about this already quite delicate economic context, you throw in the fact that a key artery of global capitalism has now become untenable, that is a huge economic blow. And I think that is why we are seeing all because nothing else has changed. You know, the, the, the violations of international law, the, the operating with impunity, the killing of journalists, the bombing of hospitals, you know the displacing of people, the bombing places that were previously designated safe this has been going on now for, for months. What has changed is that a key artery of global capitalism is now under threat, and that cannot continue for very long without causing serious economic. Problem. So I, I think you're absolutely right to put what has been happening in the Red Sea um, front and center of why we are seeing these shifts. But again, a temporary ceasefire is is not a ceasefire and should not be treated as such. Um, but I, when it comes to you know Benjamin Netanyahu's escalating, ever escalating rhetoric, you know this is a man. This is a dead man walking in many ways politically. This is someone who knows that when the war ends, so will his long career as prime minister of Israel. Um, There are many people in Israel who are deeply uh, angry with Benjamin Netanyahu, not necessarily because of the violence that he is unleashing on Gaza, but because he is not being seen as a strategic military leader. You know, the fact that first of all, the attacks on the 7th of October were a surprise, you know, the fact that that Israel's army was caught off guard by those attacks, and the fact that he has, you know, put the lives of hostages under threat and in some case killing those hostages directly um, has made him deeply unpopular within Israel. And so, you know, much like Golda Meir had to resign um, at the end of the 1973 war, I think that Netanyahu knows that it's written in the stars for him. And in some kind of very sick and twisted way, he wants the war to go on as long as possible and sets this impossible target, which is to completely wipe Hamas or anything like Hamas off the face of the earth. Um, in order to try and prolong this as long as possible, in order to try and buy himself more time, because he knows that the clock on his career, his political career, um, is certainly ticking.
1: I think that's absolutely the case, and I mean, in a way, it's a shame that we're we're talking about this on the Wednesday because, of course, these events in the Red Sea uh, were last week. But just to underscore what you said, Dali, with regards to global trade and this area um, on that strait that goes from the Red Sea. Uh, on the western side of the Arabian Peninsula, I think it's around 12% of globally traded oil and 8% of globally traded liquid natural gas goes through there. That's just one side of the the Arabian Peninsula. On the other side, of course, you have the Strait of Hormuz, uh, which is Iran's backyard. And I found it very amusing that there was a, a security analyst on Sky News last week saying, well, the only response to this is to go to war with Iran. You know, We may see blockades of 10% of global energy supplies. Let's do another 10%. Um, it really does show you how outlandish lots of comment on this is. Uh, and in terms of the pragmatism and all of this, what's been really striking is that with regards to Operation Prosperity Guardian, which is the response from the US-led response to all this, which is sending you know um, naval vessels to basically stop Houthis blowing stuff up, potentially securing maritime trade, um, it just seems sort of, outlandish and disproportionate. You know, you would send billions of dollars worth of kit rather than just say to Netanyahu, maybe negotiate a ceasefire. The latter seems infinitely more sensible and pragmatic, and yet Western policymakers can't overtly say that. Very striking. And yet they love to talk about pragmatism, don't they, in the West? Next story. Donald Trump has been barred from running for president in the state of Colorado. The state's highest court has ruled that he cannot appear on any Colorado ballot because of his role in the 6th of January 2021 riots in Washington. If the ruling stands, it means he can't appear on the 4th of March Republican primary ballot, nor on the presidential election ballot in November next year. Speaking at a rally in Iowa, Trump didn't mention the Colorado ruling explicitly, but he did say this. It's no wonder crooked Joe Biden and the far-left lunatics are desperate to stop us by any means necessary. They're willing to violate the U.S. constitutions at levels never seen before in order to win this election. Joe Biden is a threat to democracy. It's a threat. They're weaponizing law enforcement for high-level election interference because we're beating them so badly in the polls. Trump, who is subject to a number of criminal and civil cases, also posted this on platform Truth Social. Biden should drop all of these fake political indictments against me, both criminal and civil. Every case I'm fighting is the work of the DOJ, Department of Justice, and White House. No such thing has ever happened in our country before. Banana Republic. Election interference. So what exactly happened in Colorado? The ruling turns on the 14th Amendment to the US Constitution, which the Colorado Supreme Court says disqualifies the former president from running again. Now, that amendment says that people who have engaged in insurrection cannot, quote, "...be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military under the United States." That sounds comprehensive, but there's one problem. It doesn't explicitly state that someone who engaged in insurrection can't be president. In an earlier ruling in a Colorado district court, the judge there decided that Trump had engaged in insurrection, but that judge also ruled, and this is really interesting, that the 14th Amendment did not apply to presidential candidates. That ruling was overturned by the Colorado Supreme Court judges, who wrote this in their ruling. We do not reach these conclusions lightly. We're mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions now before us. We are likewise mindful of our solemn duty to apply the law without fear or favour, and without being swayed by public reaction to the decisions that the law mandates we reach. The case was brought by an advocacy group, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, and it isn't the first time a 14th Amendment challenge has been made against Trump's candidacy. Earlier cases in Michigan, New Hampshire, and Minnesota were all dismissed. And the Colorado court doesn't have the last word here. A Trump's campaign team have confirmed the former president will now make an appeal to the US Supreme Court to have the Colorado ruling overturned. A spokesperson for the Trump campaign said this. Unsurprisingly, the all-Democrat-appointed Colorado Supreme Court has ruled against President Trump, supporting a Soros-funded left-wing group scheme to interfere in an election on behalf of crooked Joe Biden by removing President Trump's name from the ballot and eliminating the rights of Colorado voters to vote for the candidate of their choice we have full confidence that the US Supreme Court will quickly rule in our favour and finally put an end to these un-American lawsuits. I thought there's nothing more American than lawsuits. And now the US Supreme Court will first have to agree to hear the appeal. They might not. Uh, In theory, they could refuse, though that doesn't seem likely. After all, its bench is currently stacked with conservative judges, with only three of the nine justices' Democratic appointees but that doesn't mean it's going to be a straightforward decision for them. And even if they do uphold the Colorado court's ruling, it isn't clear it would apply to all states. Whatever they decide, it appears to put the future of the 2024 presidential election in the hands of the judiciary. Law professor Richard Hassan compared the situation to the 2000 George W. Bush Al Gore election. That's when the Supreme Court made a decision about Florida voting machines that swung the election in Bush's favor. Hassan went on to tell the New York Times this Once again, the Supreme Court is being thrust into the center of a U.S. presidential election. But unlike in 2000, the general political instability in the United States makes the situation now Much more precarious. The Colorado court has placed a stay on their judgment until January 4th. That means it won't come into effect until then. If the US Supreme Court agrees to hear it, again, that is likely the judgment will be further paused until they reach their conclusions. Dahlia, uh, this all sounds quite arcane, the way it's being reported. You don't know if he's going to run or not run, and uh, realistically, put a pin in it, but he probably still will run on balance. This story, however, does have massive implications, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's very unlikely that the Supreme Court will not intervene. Um, I think that they will intervene on behalf of Trump as well, because, as you've mentioned, not only is it an overwhelmingly conservative Supreme Court, but, you know, a Two of those nominees, two of those um, sitting judges are Trump nominees, Um, you know, were nominated by Trump. And so I think we will see um, an intervention that is very much that Trump is in the favor of Trump. Um, But I'd still think that this will be, could potentially um, be problematic. Um, I don't think that the group, the, the advocacy group that mounted this challenge necessarily did so in the belief that the Supreme Court would, you know, wouldn't intervene on behalf of Trump. I think that the calculation was that in doing so, the Supreme Court would trigger a crisis of legitimacy in the eyes of the public, um, and that crisis of legitimacy would emerge from many different reasons. Firstly. Um, having to endorse this very flimsy idea that somehow when the constitution says that people cannot hold office if they have been involved in an insurrection, that somehow the idea of holding office doesn't also cover the presidency, which is what the kind of technicality that the Colorado judiciary tried to use to maneuver around the potential political blowback, which is to say, oh, you know, the the constitution says that it's people who hold office and that doesn't necessarily include presidential candidates, when obviously, to any kind of regular person, the presidency is not only holding office, but it's holding the highest office and the most important office. Um, but also, having the Supreme Court intervene in this way, violates two of the supposedly central principles of republicanism, which is a, you know, fidelity to the Constitution and the Constitution as it is written. Um, but also, being against interference in states' rights. Um, and so there's, it kind of on those two levels, um, it it's sort of an opportunity for the Democrats to point a finger at the Republicans and the Republican-dominated Supreme Court, or uh, well, the Conservative Supreme Court, let's say, to be completely accurate, um, and say, you know, they're hypocrites, there's a crisis of legitimacy, etc., and that can cause some political issues um, for the Supreme Court and for Trump. Um, and I think that's probably what this advocacy group were angling for when they mounted this challenge. Um, I do think that what you are see, you know, when what we are seeing here, of course, the Democrats are terrified of Trump and they are they are correct to be terrified of Trump. First of all, very likely to become the Republican nominee. Um, and if he does, he you know, it's the polling. It, it goes up and down at the moment. Biden is just a little bit ahead of, of Trump uh, in key swing states, but it's it's fluctuating. I think that a lot of people, you know, Biden is not a particularly, has never been a politically popular president, but I think that a lot of people were willing to kind of hold their nose and vote for him. I think the way in which he has been completely spineless when it comes to Israel has alienated a lot of people, particularly young people, uh, particularly people from ethnic minorities, um, especially, you know, Arabs who are not an insignificant voting block in some key states, such as Michigan. Um, so I think that they have a right to be nervous about those polls. And I also think they have a right not just to be nervous about the prospect of Trump getting elected, but the prospect of what Trump might do if he is elected, particularly given what the Democrats have put him through over the past few years. This is not the Trump of 2016, um, who's kind of deer in the headlights, wasn't really fully expecting to win, doesn't really know what he's doing, barely has a staff together. This is, you know, a Trump that is prepared, that has done it before, and is probably going to be full of vengeance. So, you know, the Democrats are taking this gamble of trying to defeat him legally and financially. They're trying to, you know, drain his funds through all of these court cases. They're trying to create these legal questions around the legitimacy of his presidency, trying to create this air of criminality and hoping that the vague kind of, you know, respectability politics amongst some potential voters or Republican voters would mean that they wouldn't want to vote for someone who has that kind of air of criminality around him. But also, you know, Financially, that they're going for his businesses, they're going for his finances, not just by trying to drain him with these lawsuits, but you know you're looking at the Attorney General um, of New York who revoked his ability to ha- conduct business in New York, which of course New York real estate commerce is absolutely central to his his financial portfolio, and by sort of blowing that in many ways they are trying to attack him financially and make him feel like it's not worth inviting that kind of political scrutiny on himself again and you know draining the resources that he might use to run i understand why the democrats would be using any means necessary legal financial whatever technical i would like to see and what i think is missing here and is dangerous and is again another example of short sighted democrats is why aren't you trying to fight him politically? Why aren't you trying to defeat him politically? Why aren't you trying to defeat him by offering something that is genuinely more politically appealing and by being more trustworthy and actually working to build that kind of consensus? Because if you're not doing that, then what you're then even if you did manage to defeat Trump on financial or legal technicalities, you're not going to defeat the conditions that brought about Trump. You're not going to defeat... Trumpism. And so it's that classic bureaucratic, technocratic Democrat approach where they're trying to make him it technically not possible for him to win or technically not possible for him to run rather than understanding that this is politics and they should be fighting it. Politically, they should be providing an actual alternative to Trumpism that is appealing to the broad base of American society and especially not doing things like continuing to support Israel when it is clear that the majority of Americans Want a ceasefire and don't want to see America, America continue their tax pay, tax dollars continuing to fund a genocide of the Palestinians. These are the kinds of things that I think are actually going to matter in the long term. And it's just putting a bandaid on a gunshot wound to try and technically delegitimize Trump, rather than making him politically unpopular by winning the game by winning on an ideological and political basis.
1: Yeah, I think that's so well said. Uh, This whole exercise is about raising the cost for Trump, right? I think even if he gets on the ballot, like you say, the idea is he's politically tainted, bad PR, hits his poll ratings, hits his resources, hits the morale of him and his people and his voter base. The finance thing is certainly true, but his poll ratings are, are pretty damn good. And he's certainly not suffered from what we can see, Um, as a result of these uh, various cases. And and you mentioned Israel. I think this is so important, Dahlia. There was great polling out about this a few weeks ago, showing that a majority, not a plurality, a majority of independents, i.e. people who aren't um, registered Republicans or Democrats, very important if you want to win a tight election, a majority of those people think that the US should be giving less money to Israel. Not stop, just give less. And so what does Joe Biden do? Well, they give $100 million worth of weapons bypassing Congress, which is uh, naughty at the best of times. Where I find an interesting difference as well between, say, Trump and Corbyn, Corbyn was subject to obviously a very similar process, which was very effective, is that in the, in the case of Trump, establishment Republicans and the Republican Party and his rivals and his competitors for the nomination, they're still behind him, or if not behind him, they would certainly disagree with this process, and I think that's hugely important because an interesting twist in this story is that all of his competitors for the nomination have indeed come out behind him. Uh, Speaking from what appears to be a private jet, Republican candidate Vivek Ramaswamy said this. The basic
2: principle that we the people select our leadership, not the unelected elite class in the back of palace halls, that's old world Europe, not the United States. That's why I'm making a pledge today that I will withdraw, I pledge to withdraw from the Colorado GOP primary ballot unless and until Trump's name is restored. And I demand that Ron DeSantis and Chris Christie and Nikki Haley do the same thing, or else these Republicans are simply complicit in this unconstitutional attack on the way we conduct our constitutional republic.
1: Somebody wants to be vice president, don't they? Another candidate, Nikki Haley, said this, I will tell you that I don't think Donald Trump needs to be president. I think I need to be president. I think that's good for the country. But I will beat him fair and square. We don't need to have judges making these decisions. We need voters to make these decisions. Strange, she doesn't make the same call with regards to abortion, but there you go. Not everybody's as consistent as they should be, perhaps. And this is what Ron DeSantis had to say. The left invokes democracy to justify its use of power, even if it means abusing judicial power to remove a candidate from the ballot based on spurious legal grounds. SCOTUS, that's the Supreme Court, should reverse. And Chris Christie told reporters this. What I will say is, I do not believe Donald Trump should be prevented from being President of the United States by any court. I think he should be prevented from being the President of the United States by the voters of this country. I think it's bad for the country if that happens. Now, the other reason I believe that is because, you know, he will have had to incite insurrection, be a part of an insurrection for him to be excluded. There's been no trial of him on that. On balance, I suspect the Supreme Court will overturn this, but even if it does, this story, outlandish as it is, gives us a taste of what's to come before the presidential election next November. We have never seen anything like it before that's frequently uttered with regards to politics but in this case it's true next story everyone loves a christmas sequel die hard gremlins home alone but one follow-up which is causing a little more disagreement dare i say discord than the usual fare on netflix is that junior doctors are back on strike junior doctors in england have today walked out in a major escalation in their battle for a 35 percent pay rise The NHS has said the new round of industrial action will affect almost all routine care, with consultants stepping in for their junior doctor colleagues, who make up around half the medical workforce. The strike will continue until 7am on December 23rd, meaning the NHS will have to prioritise urgent and emergency care for 72 hours. This all follows from similar strikes over the Christmas period last year and the wave of strikes since then has led to roughly 1.2 million operations and appointments being cancelled, significantly adding to NHS backlogs. The BMA has also announced that a second round of strikes among junior doctors will take place in the new year, with walkouts scheduled for between January 3rd and January 9th. The Junior doctors in Wales have also announced a three-day strike over pay from January the 15th. Given the dire state of the NHS, these strikes have drawn considerable criticism. Sir Julian Hartley, chief executive of NHS Providers, which represents health organisations across England, said this. This is the last thing the NHS needs. With the longest strike in NHS history planned for the new year and senior medics having to cover for striking junior doctors, quality of care will be affected with with efforts to cut waiting lists further dented by these walkouts. Last winter was the worst that many trust leaders can remember, and they're expecting this one to be even tougher as seasonal illnesses and bugs like flu take hold, adding to extreme pressure on hospital, ambulance, mental health and community services. Trust leaders understand how strongly junior doctors feel and why they're striking, but we can't afford strikes to become business as usual. We understand why you want to strike, but don't go on strike. Least of all when it might be effective. After all, that's only the point of industrial action in the first place. Hmm. There is, however, a glimmer of hope. Last month, the BMA agreed to support a pay offer by the government to senior consultants, which included a 4.95% investment in pay for the next financial year, adding to the 6% already offered. In other words, consultants broadly got what they wanted. And Health Secretary Victoria Atkins has said that if the strikes were called off this time, the government would, quote, immediately look to come back to the table to continue negotiations. A spokesperson for Rishi Sunak has also said this, We would encourage junior doctors to consider carefully the extremely significant impact striking at such a challenging time will have, both on the NHS and for individual patients, and to return to talks. And for Labour, the strikes were a chance to stick the proverbial knife in, with Wes Streeting saying this, The prospect of any department's closing thanks to Rishi Sunak's failure to end NHS strikes will send shivers down patients' spines. The Conservatives must now stop playing politics with our NHS, get around the table with junior doctors and negotiate an end to these strikes. Stop playing politics. What else would politicians be doing? So could junior doctors win their demands and what kind of impact will ongoing strikes particularly those in early January, actually have. Well, earlier today, I spoke to Andrew Myerson, a junior doctor who works in an a and
2: in a London hospital. The BMA is on strike right now. And you see doctors in, from our consultants to our specialty doctors to our junior doctors um, voting to go on strike and, uh, and maintaining this strike uh, for quite some time now because over the last uh, 15 years, we've seen a reduction in the value of our pay of up to 35%. and. That's just unacceptable, um especially after what we've been through with the pandemic, um keeping this country going um, at great personal and family risk to ourselves. Um, it's not unreasonable for us to be paid what we were being paid fifteen years ago, and so we're not asking for a cent more, we're asking for pay restoration back to what we were already making and uh, and that's why there is uh, uh but it's it's that's why there's such a significant group of doctors who are um who are uh, you know, adamant about this uh, because we're seeing far too many of our colleagues leave the profession in record numbers and that needs to end. And so the two best ways that we can do that uh, is, uh, is to reinforce our pay um, to, to, to what it was 15 years ago. Gradually, nobody's asking for an overnight uh, shift in that, uh, but we can gradually restore our pay over, over a certain amount of time and also address the terrible working conditions that we're, that we're living in.
1: You mentioned there about people leaving the profession. I just want to pick up on that for a moment. We hear repeatedly, and of course this is anecdotal, that X number of junior doctors, nurses are looking to leave the NHS and and move elsewhere. Uh, Very often you hear Australia, Canada, the United States. Have people said to you that if there was pay restoration, they wouldn't be considering such
2: a drastic course of action? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So I've seen, I've worked in the same hospital for a couple of years now, or a few years now. And there are three categories, I guess, of, of, uh, of people who are leaving the profession, uh, doctors and nurses. Um, one is pain conditions are absolutely terrible. They've done a number of years in the NHS and they decide, I just, I, for my own sanity, I need to go and work, you know, and to, need, to be able to afford cost of living, I'm going to go and work in the private sector. And so they will use their, 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 their medical and their nursing skills in the private sector, earn, earn more money. The other group of people will do the same thing, but they will leave to go abroad sitting next to, you know, a doctor, uh, you know, that was working with last year. um, And, uh, and, and, and uh, her and her partner had put in applications to, to go to Australia and they are having a high, uh, you know, much better quality of life, better paying conditions, working down in Australia and they're much happy for it. And I can't blame them for it um and then there's another group of people who unfortunately are forced out of the system because of the terrible burden um on their mental health um and you know and i have to mention this um as difficult as it is um that that we have seen far too many colleagues leave because of suicide um it is it's a terrible time to work in the NHS right now and uh and so yeah we are working in terrible conditions just seeing a lot of our colleagues leave the profession in record numbers, both nurses, doctors, other allied health professionals, because it's just too difficult to work in the NHS right now.
1: And there seems to be something of um, almost like a divide and conquer strategy, which is to say that, you know, more senior consultants are upset with junior doctors because, of course, they're having to cover for them uh, over the next three days and then at the start of January. Again, in your personal experience, what is the feedback from nurses, consultants, Other healthcare professionals towards junior doctors who haven't, um, you know, taken a step back, and if anything, are escalating industrial action.
2: I know that there are probably some people that are are frustrated about it because of the time of year. Of course, it's always inconvenient that we have to move things around and make sure that we have correct cover. Um, A lot of our consultants don't necessarily do nights anymore, and so that's a difficult thing. Um, But overall, we've had great support from, uh, you know, uh, across our colleagues. Uh, nurses and doctors and other allied health professionals, uh, who are who recognize that we are all one team. Um, that that then, that there's something wrong with this system, the way that the, this government is treating all of us. If the consultants are out on strike, if the uh, specialist doctors are out on strike, if the junior doctors are out on strike, if the nurses were back on were out on strike. Remember. Our nurses didn't agree to any any you know any you know you know big deal that they were uh, uh, that that they were you know hugely optimistic about. Um, had the I think it was the 2016 legislation that made you know it even more difficult to strike. Had that legislation not passed, then the 100,000 nurses who voted to strike last year that would have been successful, and they would have still been on strike with still had the same dispute. And so we are anticipating the nurses to go back on strike. We're anticipating other groups of doctors to go on strike, the doctors in, in, in Wales to go on strike. And we all know that we are going to have to take care of each other. We're going to have to cover for each other when they go on strike. And I think the consultants uh, are going to—they absolutely should reject this deal. It's not going to to uh, massively improve um, uh, their pain conditions anytime soon. And you know, when they decide to do that, if they decide to do that, then the juniors will be there to step in to, uh, to, to for added cover when uh, when they need our support too. I think we see this as one big family who is being harmed. Dramatically, by this government, and we're trying to do our best for each other and trying to do our best for our our patients. And that's why, when it comes time to strike, we all stand together.
1: And finally, how optimistic are you about um, a favorable solution for junior doctors? We've seen a pay settlement between the RMT, railway workers, and uh, various rail networks. Uh, We've seen a settlement with consultants. On the one hand, there should be some optimism because obviously you have immense leverage in a very important industry, which has a massive political overhead for any government. But on the other, of course, growth is low. The economy is relatively stagnant. The government's struggling to find money in in many places. So how confident are you? And just to wrap up, you also mentioned a 35 percent pay rise, have pay restoration that wouldn't be immediate. It would be something in the medium term. How much precisely would that cost the taxpayer?
2: I'm a rank and file member of the British Medical Association, and I have to defer all negotiating issues and, and more specifics to my colleagues at the BMA. Um, but you know, the, the, we're, we're not talking about a massive amount of money, raising the uplifting the pay from a regular junior doctor that might start at 14, 15 pounds an hour to get up to, 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 to 20 The amount of money that the government has spent on strikes so far, just covering for those over a billion, that could have that ballpark could have been used to um, to uh, to increase the pay of uh, our junior doctors. But in terms of my optimism about how we're doing so far and, you know, and whether or not we will win, I remain incredibly optimistic. And the reason is, is that. You know, it, it, a lot of people don't, a lot of people think that we get paid a lot more than we do. And it's just that's, that's our job to educate people about exactly what the progression is for doctors. But I think that more important than that, that, the, that the, the, the British people know what it was like 10 years ago when they could see their GP in 48 hours, when they can get their cancer care in two weeks, when they could be seen in AE in under four hours, and the system was not collapsing. It, was, it still had an immense amount of resilience back when it was still ranked the number one health care system in the world 10 years ago. Now we've seen such an, a, a catastrophic assault on public health in this country from a government that does not care about patients, does not care about staff, and is content to have the NHS run on the cheap. You know, we, we, there's news that you know, basically the NHS dentistry has collapsed. There's no chance that you can get a, 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 a dentist now. And people need to understand that's the progression of what they want to do with healthcare in this country. And you can tell from my accent, I'm from the United States. I've seen this before. A government that wants to undermine a system, they will create a two-tier, two-tier system because it benefits them because they're able to uh, to make massive investments. But it is so harmful to public health. It's so harmful to, to patients when you take away that right to healthcare. And so, after ten years of the worst assault on the NHS in, in living memory, um, the, the the British public know that we are fighting for them. That we're fighting for a system that we that 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 so it can survive many years from now. And they know that this government is fighting for billionaires, is fighting for, for for people who want to privatize the system. And so for that reason, I know that the public it will stay, will stay with us. And you know, and I, I desperately didn't want to be on strike, but this is absolutely necessary. And I believe that every NHS worker has a moral obligation to go on strike right now, to stand up for for our colleagues, stand up for our patients, and stand up for the system at large.
1: That was junior doctor Andrew Myerson speaking to me earlier today. We'll update you on the junior doctor's dispute as more news comes in on it, of course, including in January. Isn't it interesting? We hear so much in the media about immigration, too much of it, um, and yet nobody really talks about emigration and the loss of doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals to elsewhere because simply put, they are not being paid enough. Next story. Twelve months ago, the UK economy looked like a flaming dumpster fire. In December 2022, inflation was 10% higher than a year earlier. There were strikes on railways, in hospitals, even with driving instructors. Interest rates were up for the ninth straight month. So think high energy bills, rising rents and mortgage payments, and major disruptions. But now the economy looks pretty different as we head into 2024. First up is inflation. It's fallen to 3.9% last month, and that is down from 4.6% the previous month. So things are still getting more expensive, only less quickly. The Bank of England has a target of 2% for inflation. Anything above that is seen as less than ideal. But this was still a big drop from the previous month, and an even bigger drop from the 11% of last October, which of course was the highest inflation the UK had experienced in 40 years. In fact, inflation is now the lowest it's been for more than two years. So, despite the Bank of England ruling out interest rate cuts anytime soon, of course, interest rates are pushed up to deal with high inflation, others think the rapid fall in inflation makes a cut more likely than not. As Samuel Toombs is chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics, he told the BBC this. November's surprisingly sharp fall in CPI inflation reinforces the likelihood that the bank's Monetary Policy Committee will begin to reduce the bank rate in the first half of 2024, i.e. interest rates, far earlier than it has been prepared to signal so far. Interest rates are presently at a 15-year high, so calls to reduce them shouldn't really be surprising. As a result of the good news on inflation and increasingly plausible rate cuts next year, the FTSE has hit a three-month high. Not that living standards and the real incomes of ordinary people have that much to do with the stock market. Rarely hear that in legacy media, but it's true. Uh, So with the RMT and NHS nurses and consultants standing down over strikes or accepting pay deals, and with real wages starting to go up, are we seeing the end of an awful period for working people. Obviously, you hope so. Dahlia, I'm coming to you on this because it has immense implications really for the next general election. I can't help but feel if the Conservatives, and in particular Rishi Sunak, had simply focused on reducing interest rates and getting um, inflation and interest rates down ahead of the next election, which is likely, they would have delivered on that and they'd have a lot more credibility. Instead, They've relentlessly, relentlessly focused on something they won't deliver, can't deliver, and which is costing so far 200 million plus. That's Rwanda. Can you explain the politics of all this to me?
0: I mean, I'm actually not sure that I agree. I think that there isn't really something, because think if we look at the economic crisis right now, there are external and internal factors. So there are external shocks that would cause for destabilization. In the, economy, in the British economy. You can then argue, of course, that there are longer-term trends that mean that the, the British economy is less able to weather the storm um, of these economic shots because of austerity, the financialization of the economy, etc. Um, you know, that's kind of one conversation. But ultimately, in terms of Rishi Sunak's like premiership. There's not much that can be done in that sense. What what could have been done that that Rishi Sunak has failed to do is protect ordinary British people from the impacts of a crisis that they didn't cause. Um, he could mandate for increases in wages in line with inflation, or at least an increase in the minimum wage. He could have um invest done more investment into public services that would then mean that if people are suffering from the cost of living crisis at least the kind of basic welfare systems are in place and they're not being they're not experiencing multiple crises in multiple different ways so that is something that the conservative party can never offer without violating their central class interest which is in many ways their only interest Um, Things like increasing people's wages, uh, things like windfall taxes, all of these different things that would have at least mitigated the effects of this economic crisis are not the conservatives will never be able to do that. And so when they are stuck in these kinds of binds, they always try to shift the terrain to a kind of territory that they at least feel that they can win on. Um, So they pick on trans people. They pursue racist immigration against immigrants. Funnily enough, I mean, when it comes to this particular situation, this isn't proving politically popular for Rishi Sunak, because whilst in general the British public are still... um, you know, have have pretty horrifying views on immigration from my in my perspective, they still don't think that Rishi Sunak is dealing with the immigration issue well. So even if they come from the same political perspective as, as Rishi Sunak, which is not my perspective, um, which is that, you know, immigration should be reduced and all of this, they don't think that Rishi Sunak is delivering on that. And I wonder if part of that reason is because he is sort of relentlessly pursuing a policy that most people understand is not actually going to work. It's not going to achieve its stated goal of quote-unquote stopping the boats. But I think what we're seeing amongst the Conservatives right now um, is not really, um, it's more long-term actually political planning rather than short-term interest in what happens at the next election. I think that they're pretty certain that the next election is probably not going to go their way. I think they're probably going to quite value the five years it takes to regroup. You know, David Graeber famously says that Labour is only let into power when the Conservatives need to, to regroup. I think they probably feel like the time to regroup is coming, um, to recover, to reorient themselves, um, to find what their new, what their political identity is going to be, because they pretty much scraped the, the bottom of the existing barrel. Um, what they're trying to do is to think about what kind of country and what kind of political landscape they want the Labour Party to inherit. And what they want the Labour Party to inherit is a country where the so-called political centre, which is constantly moving and is very malleable. It's on a fixed set of political ideas. But where the political center is dragged as far to the right as possible, and where they can try and get the Labour Party to Because they've clocked that Keir Starmer is a follower and not a leader, um, to try and get the Labour Party to at least verbally co-sign some of the most right-wing and outrageous policies, e.g. towards trans people, immigrants, etc., so-called cultural stuff, though it's much deeper than that, of course, Um, so that the Labour Party that gets into power is dealing with a political centre that is way to the right, than they would like, and where they've already verbally committed to a bunch of stuff that's going to alienate their base. So they're basically trying to create a situation where the Labour Party are politically unpopular, politically confused, and in trouble from the very first day that they come into power. And I think that's why we are seeing Rishi Sunak abandoning the kind of lost cause of, of, you know, the Tories having an economic response that actually Protects and and is popular amongst ordinary people in Britain, and is actually going towards what country? What kind of trap are we going to lay? What kind of mess are we going to make sure that the Labour Party inherits? So that even though they are going to have to be in charge of the next five years, while we gather ourselves, we're going to make sure that it's not an easy five years, and that it's going to be a one term um, a one term leadership. And um, Keir Starmer, with all of his strategic genius, is walking straight into that trap by co-signing basically every top line that the the Tories are setting, including around Rwanda, which they are opposing not on the basis that it is morally abhorrent, um, and that it is it is not um, you know it is not aligned with with any kind of fixed political principles, but simply offering wishy washy excuses as to why it's not practical or it's not going to work. That is Keir Starmer walking into the ideological trap of the Tories, because now when he becomes prime if and when he becomes prime minister. You know, he set himself up to be not only deeply unpopular amongst the Conservatives, but deeply unpopular amongst Labour Party voters and amongst the Labour Party, um, the Labour Party base. So I don't think that what that's the Rwanda, you know, because it's an unworkable policy. I don't think the, the posturing around Rwanda, the evasion of the economic question is, is in any way a short sighted political goal. I think it is rooted in long term understanding of what the next five years are are likely to look like in Britain.
1: Yeah, I suppose I'll respond quickly to that, which is, you know, Sunak came in after um, Liz Truss and interest rates were going crazy. Inflation was obviously, had had been going crazy for a while. And I feel often the left is listening too much to like the radical right online. Um, Yes, people care about immigration, but the number one issue in the country right now, number one and two issues in the country right now are the NHS and cost of living. They are. Immigration is third, right? So if you follow Matthew Goodwin on Twitter, you think immigration is number one. It's not. Um, And the Tories have a decent story to say on cost of living because inflation is coming down. Not a brilliant story because obviously they presided over literally the worst year in living standards since the 1950s. But I mean, this year, since Sunak, um, they have a decent story to tell. And on the NHS, I mean, waiting lists actually, had actually gone down for the first time in a very long time last month. I suspect they're about to go up again because of industrial action, which of course gives junior doctors far more leverage because the Conservatives want a good story on this too going into the next election. But rather than focus on that, the, the one thing they have monumentally fucked up is, is immigration, right? Because they've repeatedly talked about bringing immigration down to tens of thousands. You have net immigration of 1.3 million. I have no problem with that. They claim to have the problem with that. And yet that's happened on their watch. Rwanda, we've given Rwanda 250 million pounds so far to not do anything. So it does just strike me as strange that you have a very limited set of policies that you can really shine a light on. And you shine a light on the one where actually your own base is really at odds with you. It's an interesting one though, darling. I think you're right, long term, they do want to polarize the public, but I think it's going to be to the detriment of Rishi Sunak in the short term. Anyway, while inflation and interest rates might be coming down, in Scotland, income tax may be about to go up. That's because the SNP administration are proposing a new top rate of tax of 48p for anyone earning more than £125,000 a year. In other words, 48p on every pound over £125,000. That would represent an increase of 1%. Alongside that they're proposing a new rate of 45% for those earning more than 75,000 in other words between 75 and 125 you'd pay that much on the pound they presently pay a marginal rate of 42% Sorry if I'm sending you to sleep. I didn't want to study accountancy, so I know how you feel. In England, the top rate of tax is 40%, so it's significantly lower, with an additional rate of 45% for those earning a salary of more than £125,000. So, income tax in Scotland was already slightly higher than in England, and it's about to go slightly higher still. The SNP claim these changes will raise an additional £1.5 billion in extra cash, and that will allow for a slight tax cut for lower earners, help increase social welfare spending by 6.7%, and boost homelessness spending by £125 million. It will also mean an across-the-board freeze to council taxes and help fund the police. In other words, the rich are paying for tax cuts for the majority of people, as well as better public services. Naturally, that makes it incredibly unpopular with journalists in legacy media. One is Merrin Somerset-Webb. She tweeted this. If you earn £125,000 and live in Scotland, you already pay £3,360 more in income tax than if you live in England. Hamza Yusuf is now planning to put in a new tax ban, 45%, between 75000 and 125000 which will bring that up to well over £5,000. That's the difference between the two. Tax the rich, you might say. And here's the same person responding to Times columnist, Kenny Farquharson, who said this. As you can see, Mr. Farquharson, a reminder that if you earn less than 75000 a year, new income tax rises will not affect you. He's actually wrong. You will pay less tax, but anyway... A reminder, Marin Somerset Webb says in a quote tweet, that they most certainly will. Everyone suffers when high earners, wealth creators, pack their bags. The most amusing one of all came from uh, Christian Calgi. This really did make me laugh. Horrifying stat from Reddit on the SMP's new tax bans. If you went to Union England and then get a job in Scotland and earn over 100k, your marginal top rate of tax is 78.5%. For postgrads, that goes up to 84.5%. That, that isn't about the SMP's new tax bans. That's about university tuition fees and how crazy financing them is. Uh, just to reiterate, if you're not familiar with this, and this is really extraordinary, if you did a degree after 2012 in England or Wales, and you took out a student loan, the interest rate on that loan is RPI plus 3%. So about 13%, 14 15% for, for parts of last year. Basically, you're looking last year at credit card-style interest rates for a student loan, but that, that is not a con. That's not a problem. Just bumping up taxes for people earning more than £75,000 should have you terrified. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that when it comes to taxing the rich, people like those two I just showed you from Twitter will say, people will leave, anybody who can count to 10 is heading for the borders. If they're, if they're literate, if they can do their ABCs, they're going to go elsewhere. But actually, when you lumber somebody with 50, £60,000 worth of student debt, and give them an interest rate akin to a a credit card, that's not a problem. Why would anybody leave? Which, of course, they are. You talk to nurses looking to go to Australia, Canada, the US, many of them talk about their student loans, their student debt. On average now, for a newly qualified nurse, £50,000, they say, I can't afford this. It's fascinating to me. Some things apparently are disincentives, like taxing the rich. Other things like extortionate tuition fees, apparently don't matter. Interesting. Next story. American financier and paedophile Jeffrey Epstein is back in the news, despite having died four years ago. And his reappearance might be about to ruin Christmas for an awful lot of powerful people. A US judge has ordered the release of the names of more than 170 of Epstein's associates. The names were all included in filings made in a lawsuit brought by Epstein victim Virginia Giuffre against Ghislaine Maxwell. Maxwell is the daughter of disgraced British media tycoon and fraudster Robert Maxwell and is currently serving a 20-year prison term for sex trafficking crimes she committed with Epstein. After that trial, the names were placed under a court-ordered seal, along with hundreds of files of evidence, all of which is now being made public. Many of those named are likely to be people who worked for Epstein or Maxwell in some capacity. And Prince Andrew is also likely to make a reappearance. That's because the testimony of a woman called Johanna Sjöberg is to be released, She accused Prince Andrew of groping her in 2001, an allegation Buckingham Palace called categorically untrue. But the release of 40 further documents of evidence from Sjöberg could cause the disgraced prince even greater discomfort. In 2022, Andrew paid a reported £12 million to Geoffrey to settle a civil case she brought against him. That's right, the king's younger brother wrote a cheque for £12 million to a woman he claimed he'd never met. The judge has given the people on the list until the 1st of January to appeal the release of their names. Adalia, do you think Prince Andrew will be sweating about this new release of names and documents?
0: I mean, if he wasn't sweating before, um, which according to him he wasn't, he will now obviously it's hard to to know exactly what the implications of this story will be because the names haven't actually been officially released yet um i would be very curious to see um who is on there when it comes to to prince andrew i mean look on the one hand i don't think there are many people that are very conflicted on what they think uh, andrew's implication here is uh, i think he's almost sort of dug his own grave with that one i think Certainly, the new evidence that could appear uh, as a result of this unsealing of documents could demonstrate a pattern of behavior that becomes very difficult for him to refute. But ultimately, I think most people know where they stand on this issue. And certainly a lot of people don't necessarily believe Andrew's uh, um, description of events when King Charles took over from the late Queen there was some indication that perhaps he was going to take a more hardline approach to, to Andrew. He, you know, evicted him out of one of his palaces or whatever. Um, And we all shed a tear um, for Andrew on that day. Um, And that seemed to suggest that there was going to be that, you know, the kind of soft spot that, that the late queen had for him had maybe that phase had been over, but that has now been pretty much reneged and it's, and, you know, Prince Andrew is very much back in the fold, and so for me, the statement that matters to me at this point, when it comes to the specific story of, of Andrew, which is what is you know our our head of state, what do our head of state, how do our head of state deal with revelations such as this? As far as I'm concerned, that statement has has already been made. That in the face of an a crisis of legitimacy. Um, when it comes to to Andrew's suspected involvement with Epstein, um, the palace chose to stand by Andrew. And if you're going to believe, you know, Omid Scobie's recent book um, covering sort of the Meghan-Harry royal family affair, they decided that they were going to essentially try and make a pariah out of Harry and Meghan in order to try and distract from the fact That they are not going to take any action against Andrew, despite, um, you know, the. Let me not say too much because it's all alleged at this point, I guess, but despite his alleged involvement with a man like Jeffrey Epstein.
1: I have to say, darling, I I find the prospect of a potential libel case being brought by Prince Andrew against yourself on Avara Media rather amusing. Unlikely, but I'm, I'm very glad and gratified to see the professionalism you just showed there. Uh, and uh, I have to say, I was rather disappointed that I didn't see more of Randy Andy in the final series of The Crown. I wonder why. Uh, thank you, Dahlia, for joining me this evening. And congratulations again on your PhD. Thanks for
0: having me. And to you too, for your baby oh. as well. <laughs>
1: yeah. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'll see you again tomorrow for another show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Novara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to
2: NovaraMedia.com slash support.